0: falling off a scaffolding into the San Francisco Bay to their death. That'll slow down production. Not only did some die, but workers who were mourning the loss of their peers and working slowly because of their own fear of falling to their death, the production had slowed way down and they got tremendously behind. Engineers and managers could find no solution to the very costly delays in the work. Eventually, someone suggested hanging a large net, a gigantic net, underneath the bridge construction where they were to catch anyone who fell. Finally, in spite of the enormous cost and time that took to build the net, the engineers opted to build the net. Here's a couple pictures. The net was installed and progress from then on was hardly interrupted again. Some workers fell into the net, but they were saved and they went back to work. Ultimately, all the time that was lost due to the fear of dying was regained. Once the net was provided for the workers, they were prepared to work with trust and confidence. Now, we could probably relate to that, right? If you were one of those scaffolding bridge workers uh, seeing people fall to their doom, um, you'd probably feel a lot more at ease knowing that there was a net there to catch you, right? Right? I think we can relate to that. I would feel much, much better about those working environments. So Probably most of us wouldn't choose to be in those working environments in in the first place, but hear the parallel here. What a picture this is of God's saving grace and power guaranteed to us while we're doing the work in this world that he's called us to do. So I want you to keep this image in your head as we go, and when we are facing Dangerous situations, costly situations, facing great opposition, and when persecution comes, even when the world seems to be falling apart. We walk and work strongly because of God's grace and power in our lives. And today, as we return to our Exodus series, moving the world to freedom, this is where we are. This is what God has us today, that his grace and his power prepare us for the work that he's called us to do, you and me, all of us. We pick up in chapter six, verse 10, and so I encourage you to open your Bibles if you haven't already, turn on your Bibles, whatever it takes, and your sermon notes are in your bulletin. If you did not get those, raise your hand and Chris will pass those out to you. I see one already. Okay, it's good to have all these things laid out. Have your hearts prepared. Here we go into the text that God has for us today for this moment. Before we get to chapter six, let's review quickly to catch everybody up where we've been. In the last two weeks, two weeks ago, we were in chapters three and four, which covered God's calling to Moses. And we learned through watching God's calling of Moses that we all have a calling in this world too. And there's a process by which God calls us to the the purpose that he has us to live in this world. And Moses' calling started out well But even though he was in the center of God's will, it immediately turned into great discouragement from all sides, from Pharaoh and Egypt to his own people, the Israelites, discouragement, even though he was being obedient to God, discouragement from all sides. But embedded in the early verses of chapter six, last week, we saw some of the foundational promises in all of the Bible, seven I will statements from God, seven promises that reached that were central to the entire unfolding plan of redemption of the Bible, central to the story of the universe, central to the exodus from Israel, central to the Passover feast, central to all of the unfolding plan of redemption, all seven promises from God we saw found their ultimate fulfillment in the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. And we get a lot of power and comfort from that And now on this side of the cross, we have that power through the final sacrifice of Jesus, power to defeat sin, power to defeat death, judgment, and all discouragement along the way, having been set free by receiving Jesus' gospel in our lives. That's who we are, brothers and sisters. This is good news. Now, there's a reason for all of this. We all have a purpose, just like Moses did in this Part of the large story of the universe that we're studying together. So, the drama between Moses and Pharaoh is going to escalate and become enormous over the next few weeks. They have started already and they will con- con- continue going back and forth, back and forth in a major power struggle. God has identified the purposes for all of this struggle. If you remember, God wanted Israel to become so repulsive to Egypt that they won't just let them go, but they would kick them out and, t- and send all their provisions with them. We trust God in his ultimate plan, knowing that he knows best. It's going to take a little while to get there, and we're going to see that in the next couple of weeks in the big battle of the 10 plagues. But further, God also wanted to crush the pride of Pharaoh. And as we'll see today, judge Egypt. For their cruelty. As we study what happened between Moses and Pharaoh, I pray that God reveals to all of us how the safety net of his grace and the demonstrations of his power in in the world, in our lives, prepare us for our calling today. Let's start with his grace. God's grace prepares us. In verses 10 through 13, God told Moses to go back to Pharaoh, and Moses' response was one of unbelief and despair. Oh, I got to go back. Indeed, for Moses, God's grace was needed again, and that's what we see in verses 10 through 13, God's grace needed again. Let's read the verses. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Now, we might relate to this. I think we've been relating to Moses every step of the way. Moses could not understand how... Is Pharaoh going to listen to me if your people don't even listen to me? That's a valid concern. He still did not not feel up to the life to which God had called him. So God must demonstrate his grace and power. And then Moses reveals an internal struggle, that he's still lacking confidence. Still lacking confidence in his skills, in who he is. And Moses, like us, is tempted to give up. But once again, God persists in his grace. He knows that he is all-powerful, completely trustworthy, that he doesn't call the equipped, he, he equips the called. He knows he's going to be with Moses. So he persists in his grace. And gladly for Moses, and some of us who are slow learners, God will continue to be gracious and patient. And he is going to get more Even more gospel promises to Moses to reassure him in our text today. But first, all of a sudden after verse 13, we come to verses 14 through 25. And if you have your Bibles open, you see that it looks differently here. Verses 14 through 25. In these 12 verses, Moses inserts a genealogy here. This is a family record which interrupts the story of Moses and Aaron's ongoing conversations with Pharaoh and God. Now, in books that we read today, something like this might be put in a little text box that might be shaded with gray with a fancy title on it, but Moses didn't have publishing like that. So he had his papyrus, and he just inserts this right into the, into the text. But here's why it's so important. What we see here is the great purpose for doing so, I, I put his letter B, that God's grace is demonstrated in our stories. There's a reason this is here. Now, we're not going to read these verses. I know you'd love to hear me pronounce all those names. You can do that another time. But as you scan through those, Moses' purpose for including a portion of his and Aaron's genealogy here, right in the story, right at this point, was to build a case for how Moses and Aaron became the leaders of the nation of Israel. With 3 million people, trust me, There were at least a few, more than a few I would imagine, that were asking, how are these guys qualified and appointed to lead us? And so Moses puts this genealogy in there. And we want to know and we need to know this about our leaders. How are they qualified and are they trustworthy? We want to verify their calling and we want to know that they and the direction they are leading us can be trusted. Life is too important to be led in the wrong directions, amen? Amen. And so, remember that Moses had asked God, how will they know that I'm real? Remember he said, telling them that a a voice in a bush um, isn't gonna work. And so, God gave him signs, and he gave him this genealogy as well, which shows two things. One, that Moses and Aaron have a priestly heritage, which is a respectable qualification, that in and of itself is not enough, but it's important to establish that. It's gonna because the priestly system is gonna build off of, off of Aaron's line. But more significantly, second, is that it shows that they were not from nobility, that their qualifications did not come because they were wealthy or from some royal family. It allowed them to highlight that it was only by God's grace that they were called. This is God. They were able to give God all the credit and the glory for the signs that they had and the, and the messages that they had and the leadership that they had, God's grace is demonstrated in our stories. I don't know that any of us came from royalty, but it's God's grace in our lives that give us the authority of God. If you have been saved by Jesus, then your story is just like this. Your story is part of the unfolding story of God's redemption of the world, and that's exciting. Proclaim your story to the world. Proclaim your story to the world, what God through Jesus has done in your life. That's what Moses is doing here, and it gives God glory, and it gives them credibility because it's about God. Now, back to God giving grace to Moses again. After the genealogy, we come to verses 28 through 30, and this conversation's not over. Let's look at these verses. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, I am of uncircumcised lips, how will Pharaoh listen to me? Moses is very persistent at this lack of confidence and complaint and resistance. Once again, Moses, my lips, God, and at this point, the Bible is like a photo album filled with pictures of God's grace. Here's one of them. Over and over again, we doubt, we stumble, we fail, we question, we disobey, we make excuses, and over and over, God gives grace. God's grace is preparing Moses. God's grace is preparing you, as you have these same experiences in your life. Moses knew he couldn't keep drawing from the well of God's grace forever and not doing anything. He knows that, and so do we. It was time to act. He knew it. God knew it. But Moses is now prepared in God's grace. God now prepares Moses with what comes next, his power. God's grace prepares us. God's power prepares us for what he's calling us to do. We enter chapter 7 in verses 1 and 2. God reveals to Moses the power that he is giving him. Here's what he says. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. See what's happening here. God is transferring his power to Moses and Aaron for their calling. Because Moses was God's ambassador, God's representative to Pharaoh, he came with God's authority, with God's power. Now, Pharaoh, who considered himself to be a god, will be slow to recognize Moses' divine authority. See the parallels in our own life. We come with God's power. People are slow to see it and to receive it. But through the 10 plagues, Pharaoh's eventually going to get the picture. Listen, this is God's power. This is exactly how he treats us and how he calls us and how he prepares us by giving us his power for our calling. Now, why does this seem so familiar? Because Jesus did the exact same thing in the Great Commission for us. We have part of the Great Commission on our wall right here. Our commission in life, our mission in life as Christians and as every church is to make disciples of all nations, to be Christ followers who make Christ followers. But the verse right before this verse, Matthew 28, 18, Jesus... One of the final things he says before he leaves the earth to all of his disciples, including us, is all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, all authority, all power. Go, therefore. He's transferring his power and authority to us as his ambassadors in the world, to cover the world. Same thing that God did with Pharaoh then, Jesus did with us and what we live under right now. He prepares us with His grace. He prepares us with His power. Now, despite having God's power, grace, authority, does everyone that we talk to about Jesus instantly fall down and give their lives to Christ at the moment? Do they? No, they don't. And neither did Pharaoh. And now we learn about hardened hearts. Verses three and the beginning of four. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. The book of Exodus refers 20 times to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Ten times it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. But then it starts using these words. The other 10 times, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And through the ages, over the thousands of years that this has been recorded, that has raised this question that we need to ask. Is it fair to punish someone, in this case Pharaoh, when God is hardening his heart? Have you ever wondered that as you read Exodus? Let's answer that. We're going to be well informed and reassured by the answer to this question. Two parts to the answer today. One, it was deserved. Pharaoh deserved to be punished. He had done much evil and he deserved it. So let's establish that sinners deserve God's punishment. Second, God's hardening of hearts comes after chances are refused. He was given chances but refused them now have had pharaoh repented and released the israelites after the first ask or even after the first plague god's grace could have been received but consider pharaoh and the entire egyptian nation's hearts instead they enslaved the israelites treated them cruelly tortured them for hundreds of years and then had a mass murder of the hebrew baby boys And all of that was done well before God hardened Pharaoh's heart. They did all of that in their own free will. God gave them chances. They continually rejected him. And thus, God gave them over to hardened hearts to accomplish his righteous judgment and purposes in them. This same thing happens today as well. In the New Testament, Romans chapter 1 Elaborately describes this process as it happens today in the hearts of humans. And I'm talking about Romans 1, verses 18 through 32. I'm not going to read all those verses, but I'm going to summarize its teaching right now. Verse 18, Romans 1:18 says, For the wrath of God, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So we have a world full of unrighteousness suppressing truth and God's wrath on it. The passage continues teaching that the truth is out there, it's available. All creation demonstrates God's glory and anyone who turns to that and seeks to know the real creator will, be, will receive God's truth. And so every human is without excuse. Claiming to be wise... They become fools and exchange the glory of creator God for the worship of the creation instead. In every form imaginable, we humans worship the creation. We worship our stuff. We find our identity and our accomplishments, at work or in school, in money and having, you know, that security in our money, in popularity, in sex. We become lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. We seek spiritual truth in paganism or the occult or other false religions, in increasing our power and control over other people, any form of rejecting the creator and in worshiping the creation instead. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts. What Romans says happens today in our hearts. This is the exact thing that was happening with Pharaoh. Romans says, God gave them up in their lust to dishonor their bodies, to unnatural passions and sexuality. And since they still refused to acknowledge God, he gave them up further, and this is the end of the whole cycle, he gave, God gave them up to a debased mind. This is a mind that is so warped and twisted that it's consumed with ungodly behavior, not, want, not wanting to be fixed, consumed with opposing everything that is godly, and not just doing the ungodly behavior, but celebrating everyone else who does it too. That's Romans chapter 1. Pretty much everything in Hollywood that, put, that Hollywood puts out these days just has this all over it, right? But it's not just out there in Hollywood. It's here in our own communities. People all around us are hardening their hearts against God, exchanging the creator for the creation and pursuing these things. And friends, some of you are dabbling in hidden sins or secret sins or out in the open, unrepentant sins. Don't give yourself over to these things. Don't take them so far that God eventually gives you over to them. This is the teaching of Romans. This is what happened to Pharaoh. And God's power is the focus now. God declares how God's power is about to be on display in what he tells Moses next in verses 4 and 5. He says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Here we have the purpose of the 10 plagues, which is next week, the 10 plagues. But the purpose of them is stated here. It's to demonstrate to the Egyptians, to the Israelites, to us today, that Yahweh, I am the Lord, is the real and all powerful God. Not the gods of the Egyptians, not any other idols that we worship today. God is God. <laughs> Chapter 6 and 7, up to this point, have shown us that there are two ways to know God. One is by, his, by experiencing his mercy and grace through our faith in Jesus, experiencing his power through receiving the gospel promises. Or, second, by experiencing his wrath in judgment. Those are the two ways we'll all know about God. Everyone will eventually acknowledge that he is God. Philippians 2, 10 and 11 say, so that the na- at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father, everyone will acknowledge that he's God one way or the other. It's your choice, mercy and grace or his wrath and judgment. God waits for a period of time for people to come to him. If that's you, and God is speaking to you today, come to him now. And experience his grace and power and new life by trusting him as your Lord and Savior today from the sins that have been eating you up. He'll take them all away. He's a good God, and he's the only God and the only all-powerful God. If we harden our hearts, we risk losing all of that and instead facing God on the last day in the judgment, in his wrath, his just wrath. Moses and Aaron got this, and they acted. They understand who God is. They understand what God is giving them, and they acted. They were done making excuses. We come to our last two verses for today, verses 6 and 7. Moses and Aaron did so. They finally, after all of the drama and the conversations and the doubt and the wrestling, they have been prepared by God's grace and by God's power, and they are ready. They believed and they obeyed. It says, now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. These guys weren't young men anymore. I think that gives us two things. That gives us a lot of hope in God's grace and patience, but it also proclaims that we can be used by God in mighty ways at any point in our lives, any point in our lives, any point in our lives. We can be used by God to be champions for Christ in this world. God is awesome, and he's worth all of this. Believe it, and come, like Moses and Aaron, to the place of acting on your calling. Which brings us to one fitting next step, which encompasses all of your life. That is, prepare to be God's people for life. This is the text God had us in today. It was about that final preparation of giving yourself and your doubts and your questions finally over to God, receiving his grace and his power that he's working through your lives to make you who he wants you to be. This encompasses all of your life. You choose Moses and Aaron were God's people in Exodus. We are God's people today that he's calling. So let's reflect, what kind of man was Moses now after God's preparations? Well, he was willing to intervene in difficult situations, okay, he was willing to get blamed for causing problems. His motives were misunderstood. His goal was to bless, protect, defend, and reconcile his people. He had conviction, he had preparation, he had God's grace. And he had God's power. So God is preparing his people today, that's us, to be these same things and to have a heart of justice, to face the criticism of of peers around us, to face conflict with the powers of the world. He's preparing us to do these things, to be vulnerable and to be teachable, to always be growing in Christ, to refuse to be controlled or intimidated by powerful people who are wrong. To not be bought at any price. This is the preparation of those who will move the world to freedom in Christ. That's a great team to be on. Not easy, but it's a great team to be on. So ask yourself before God right now, what does this look like in my life and my sphere of influence? All of them. Every part of my life. Apply it to every part of your day-to-day personal life. This is where the majority of our lives need to be focused on, is our day-to-day life, our family, our church, our workplace, our neighborhood, community, schools, where God has us in our day-to-day life. That's where the majority of our focus needs to be. The majority of where God's calling for us to make a difference in this world is, is gonna rest, okay? But in closing today, Sometimes there are larger spheres of reality that need to be dressed, addressed. And right now, I'm thinking about America as a country. People have had to fight and die for freedom since the beginning of America, and we're appreciative of that. Preachers have needed to apply biblical truth not only to personal day-to-day lives, but also on a larger societal level. And I'm happy and blessed with the privilege of doing that, of addressing certain things on that larger level And this continues to be the case in America to a rapidly increasing measure, and we need to be prepared. The agenda to move our country away from freedom, away from Christian principles, away from the fear of God, away from the law of God, has gained a lot of strength and momentum. It has great power and influence in our country and in our lives, too, through media, through education, through culture, through government. See, this has happened so gradually over the last 300 years. You can trace this. Historians do. It's pretty clear. But it's happened so gradually over 300 years that American Christians have, by and large, not stood strong against this movement. And we find ourselves here where we are today. We have become the proverbial frog in the boiling water. How many of you have thought about that metaphor recently. That's, in case you don't know that metaphor, there's a pot of boiling water, there's a frog in it. He doesn't know that he's being cooked to death because the water temperature increases just a little bit at a time until finally it's boiling and he dies. That's how Americans have been, and the American church hasn't stood strong against this anti-God movement because of that. It's just a little at a time. But this movement of our society away from Christ and away and toward chaos and toward division and toward this culture of death and towards the distortions of sex, it's all about to take a large leap in the Equality Act. The Equality Act that passed the House of Representatives last week and is now moving to the Senate in the coming days where it must get 60 votes in the Senate to pass. Now, not everyone is aware of this yet. Maybe that's the first time you've ever heard of this. But this bill, H.R. 5, known as the Equality Act, is an all-out attack. Okay, it's a large leap. It's not a slow boiling water anymore. It's an all-out attack on the family, on the unborn, on sexual health, on human dignity, on diversity and beliefs, and on Christian companies, ministries, Christian schools, and churches. It sets out to do great damage to the First Amendment rights, to religious liberty, faith, and freedom. The act claims to prohibit discrimination against sex, gender identity, and sexual orientation by bringing gender identity, which is fluid, by their own definition, at a whim, to the level of civil rights protection of ethnicity or skin color, which is obviously not fluid. If passed, It would supersede all religious protections currently in place in our country. It transgenders all public schools, public properties from bathroom usage where sexual predators would have open access to our girls' and women's restrooms without question, without the ability to question, to curriculum, which is already radicalizing in our schools, to essentially ending girls' and women's sports, which we are already seeing. It abolishes separate facilities for men and women in such places as homeless shelters. I could go on. On human life, which isn't receiving as much media, but to the Christian is at least as important, it enshrines abortion in ways only dreamed about in legislation up to this point. It would punish any provider who refuses to perform an abortion to murder a baby. It would punish any provider that chooses not to murder babies under the claim of pregnancy discrimination. Think about that. What a way in. Further, it seeks to shut down faith-based fostering and adoption ministries. I remember seeing this movement in Washington State five, six years ago, and it was gaining a lot of traction. We've had a little reprieve And it's back, shutting down Christian fostering and adoption ministries. See, this is giving its regard only to the agenda behind it, not to life and not to children who are in need of a good home. So this bill is an all-out rush to implement everything that they wanted, whoever they are, people who aren't following God and don't fear God and are anti-God's law it's a rush to implement the most God-hating legislation possible. The days of slowly boiling water are over. Senators are calling, that are voting on this are calling this the beginning of the targeting, not just of the First Amendment, but targeting of the church. Now, this is reality. This is what we're going to speak into, and I'm going to speak into this. Brothers and sisters, Listen. So what I have to say here, this is not the first time in history that Christians have faced this, that the church has faced this. In fact, we have had the blessed privilege in this country of religious freedom, which has been rare in the big picture. While the vast majority of Christians over the last 2,000 years have had the blessed privilege of being strengthened and refined in the fires of persecution, we are simply in the process of changing from one blessed privilege to another. We don't like it, but we have our calling. We have God's grace and God's power. Or if God allows, we're in the process of starting a revival that holds this change back in the name and glory of Jesus Christ. We don't know. God knows how it's all going to play out. Now also, this bill may not pass in the Senate, Okay, but if this one doesn't pass, do you see how rapidly and how far America is changing? I hear pastors, church leaders say, you know, all the blame goes on the church for being soft and honestly leaving good doctrine. I don't know about all the blame, but there's a huge amount of blame to put on that. We need to stand strong on the Word of God and be an influence of love and truth and grace in every sphere and stop just burying it all and being like the rest of the world. We are God's ambassadors of a better way. I believe that in the future, much of the country is going to look to places like Indiana for strength and leadership. I believe that's what we are. That's what we have, we'll have to offer. So I have six things that Christians must do, and then we'll close. Pray. It's not the least we can do. It's the most powerful thing we can do. Do you understand that? If we're not praying... God's not moving for us. Pray. Second, treat everyone, everyone with love and dignity. This is Jesus' way. Everyone is a sinner, including us, who needs to be saved by Jesus through his grace. So we preach the good news of the gospel of freedom and we lavish love and grace everywhere we go. That's our call. Third is to stand strong and united for truth. It's time to stop squabbling about all the little things that we disagree about. That's one of the great benefits of persecution. The refining fires of persecution is that believers stand strong together. We stop arguing about all these little things that are so petty that we argue about all the time. The image of God is being assaulted. So we stand, and it's time to have a Holy Spirit-powered backbone. Like the apostles did in the New Testament. Maybe you need to read the book of Acts again and see how engaged and boldened they were in the public square. That's where we need to get our inspiration. Don't slip and let yourself get caught in divisive Facebook posts and commenting. That's just indicative of the kind of slipping we can do into arguing and being divisive and not Jesus-like. Jesus called us salt and life, light. Salt preserves culture and blesses the culture. Light exposes darkness with a great blessing. That's us. Four, we need never to be fearful. Never to be fearful. We don't need to fear ridicule, getting canceled, losing your job. God commands us to be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer. And he says that because he knows that he's in sovereign control. We have nothing to fear. Certainly we'll be bothered by things, but nothing to fear. Five, we need to get off the heavy influence of the world's media it has on us. We consume music and movies and TV and books and screen time and porn. We consume these things thinking they won't have any effect on us, and they do. They render us useless. We become what we consume. So here's the principle, starve the flesh, feed the spiritual nature. And then sixth, use the political process that we do have. We have cultural influence and the legislative process. God not only allows for this, Christians, this is the exact counsel and what Jesus and the apostles modeled. They used the political processes that they have in place. And for us, right now, this is to contact our senators and some other things. Things that don't really take much time, but if we don't do them, they don't make the impact. I'm going to email you today, this afternoon, I'm going to email everybody in the church, a few things, some links and simple instructions to do this, because it needs immediate action. I'm going to include a, uh, a note from Lakeland Christian Academy and from ACSI on how it affects Christian schools. It affects potentially Grace College, Grace Seminary, the school that meets here, Lakeland, um, It's very well spelled out, the details involved, and the action steps we can take right now. And I just want to say, this action is effective. I took a tour of the Washington State Capitol a few years ago. It was a tour run by a Christian organization, and part of it was to show us the impact that Christians can make when we show up in the world, in the culture, in the the legislation. And for some reason, 50 years ago or whatever it was, Christians have just kind of left the whole Public square in that way. And guess what? The other lobbyists, they show up in mass. And all of them, all of the politicians and they they all say this: that it does make a difference when Christians come and, and interact. It does. It makes a huge difference. And it makes a huge difference when they don't as well. So I'm gonna send that out today. Those are some clear instructions as we talk about. Again, I want to focus on our personal day-to-day life being by far the majority of our calling from God. Your day-to-day life and your influence, that's, that's what we're responsible for. But there are these times when we need to take action on a bigger societal level, and this is now. This is now. May it revive us, strengthen us, encourage us as God is preparing us even in this moment with his grace and power to do his work in the world that the world so badly needs We don't want to keep it from the world anymore. Let's pray. And then the two songs we're going to sing as we close, the first one is a personal commitment. That's our priority. The second one is a celebration of God's power in the world. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we absolutely have no reason to fear. Every reason to celebrate and praise and worship you. You have the final, ultimate victory. And you're the one who gives us the power and calling to work out your your will in the world. And so we celebrate that. And so we pray a prayer of repentance and faith in the power of Jesus crucified and resurrected. We pray now and respond a prayer that's very clear in each of our lives how the Holy Spirit wants us each to respond and as a church together. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.